Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we come to you this morning and we're just so thankful, God, for the grace that you have shown to us and you continue to show to us day in and day out. Lord, we thank you for the privilege to, to sit under the teaching of your word and we, we pray this morning for the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts to receive the words that we hear by faith. So God, we pray that you would speak to your people this morning. God, that you would do something supernatural in our lives, that these wouldn't just be the words of a man that are spoken. God, that you wouldn't just give us some insights to make our lives better. But Lord, we pray for the mighty power of God Almighty, the same power that worked in, to raise Jesus Christ from the dead and to sit him at the right hand of the Father, that that work would be done in our hearts, in our lives, to trust in you. We thank you, O God, and pray these things in your name. Amen. So this week I had planned to, to preach on the next section of Ephesians 2, which begins in verse 11. But as I was preparing uh, my sermon, I was reading some comments on verse 10 from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and I became convinced that I should probably spend a little bit more time on this idea that we are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus. Because I think the more that we understand what that means, that we are God's workmanship, uh, in more detail, that it will just amaze us at what God is doing, and, and prayerfully that it would stir us to love Him and to obey Him more fully. You see, last week we sort of looked at that idea sort of from the view of about 10,000 feet. We sort of looked at the context of being God's workmanship, that we are, we are saved by grace. It's not something that we deserve. It's a gift that God has given to us. And this comes to us through faith. Now, that, that faith is not the determining cause, and, and, and so therefore it's not some good works that we do. It's not something that comes from us. And so we can't brag. I don't know, maybe you've known Christians who sort of look down upon other people because they don't have faith in Jesus Christ and they act as if they're better than them, better than other people. They don't understand that that faith is a gift of God. And, and then even the good works that God has for us as, as people who after we become Christians, even that it says that God has prepared those for us ahead of time in verse 10. So we can't even brag about those things. So we really come to God with no sense of, hey, you're so lucky to have us, but it's really a sense of humility and a sense of praise to God that he would show his wonderful love. And so now I want to sort of bring it down to maybe a hundred foot level and look more at what this means further that we are God's workmanship. So that's really my first point that I want us to see this morning is that we are God's workmanship. I want to talk about that just a little bit more. I know I'm going to be repeating a little bit of what I said last week, but you know what? It never hurts to repeat. It's actually, it really helps me out if I hear some, the same thing over and over. But what I want us to understand is, is that it is imperative, brothers and sisters. I mean, it is crucial that we learn to think of ourselves in this way. And it, it is only as we do see ourselves as God's workmanship that we will truly function as Christians. We must not only see that we don't make ourselves Christians, but we must understand that we are something that is being made and fashioned by God even as we come to Him in faith. 
And that that work that God is doing in our hearts is not only in our individual Christian lives, but also in our lives collectively as the church. And so I want to ask you this morning, do we, do you habitually think of yourselves as God's workmanship? Do you see your life as, as something that God, that's being handcrafted by God himself, that he is molding and he is shaping and he is fashioning for you for a specific purpose? Now, we see that picture of God being the workman in both the Old and the New Testament as he's described as the potter and we are the clay, right? You've heard that illustration if you've grown up in the church that the potter takes hold of this the shapeless mass of clay and he begins to, to work it. You know, and it's on a spinning wheel oftentimes and he's working that wheel and he's forming and he's shaping and he's rounding it off and he's getting rid of the angles and the corners and he's fashioning it and he's making a pot or, or some other uh, um, thing out of it. And that's the picture that's given here in Ephesians 2 that God is the workman and we are the clay. And I think we need to be reminded of that because I wonder if we don't sometimes think that God is more passive in his work in our lives and than what he really is. We know, we all know that God is in heaven and that he is approachable and he, he loves us. And of course, if we come to him and we pray and we ask him that he will hear our prayers and he will answer them, that, that God's riches are abundant. He has this great treasure house, this vast storehouse of gifts that he is ready to give to his children But I wonder sometimes if we don't think that God is not serious about our spiritual life and growth until we take it seriously. And so therefore, in those times in our lives where maybe we're living and we're not as conscious of God, and we're just sort of going along and we're not thinking so much about the Lord, that we think that God is more passive than what he really is. But that's contrary to what we see here in Ephesians 2. Christianity is entirely the result of the activity of God. It is God who is the workmanship. It is God who is active. And and how is it possible that anybody can open the scriptures, especially at the beginning of the Bible, and see the words, in the beginning, God, and then think that the rest of the scriptures is really just the activity of man? It is God who acts. And you see that throughout the scriptures. Who created the world? It was God. Who created mankind? Man and woman. It was God. And even when, when human, the first humans, the first couple sinned, who went after them? It was God. He didn't wait for them to, to figure out their plight. He came to them. It is God who called Abraham. It is God who created the kings. It is God who called the prophets. It is God who gave the law. It is God who gave the instructions to build the tabernacle and the temple. And it is God who in the fullness of time sent his own son. So it's God's workmanship and his activity from the beginning to the end. And yet even we who are Christians sometimes can forget that and think that our Christian life and even us being Christians sometimes has something to do with us. We forget how active God is to save us and to sanctify us. And even if we start out the Christian life and we understand that we are dead in our sins and there's nothing that a dead person can do, 
in terms of breathing new life in themselves, that that must come from God. Even if we approach things that way, sometimes even in our sanctification, we can begin to think that maybe uh, we have more to do with it than what we really do. Now, somebody who's astute may be sitting here and thinking, now wait a minute, Rick. Yes, our justification is monergistic. In other words, it only comes from God. We're only justified by Him. But our sanctification is synergistic. In other words, we do have some place in that sanctification. We are called to obey the Lord. We are called to, to follow in His ways and to obey His commands. And I would say to that, that's true. But Paul tells us that even that which we have been commanded to do, uh, Paul says in Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you, both to will, that is to desire, and to work for His good pleasure. So even when we do respond in obedience to God, that is only because He is working in our hearts. And, and even the very term that He uses here in Ephesians 2.10 you know, makes it quite impossible for this work to be from us. That God is the workmanship. Now, let me just think about this in terms of our everyday life. You know, as, as parents, I think sometimes we can fall into this trap with our kids you know, maybe we have a child that is lukewarm towards the things of God at best. And we worry and fret about our child's spiritual condition, wondering if uh, all will turn out well for them and they will love God or not. And God wants us to know that he is the true workman of your child's heart. Look to him to do a mighty work in your child's life. Spend much time in prayer and pleading to God on behalf of your child. Yes, parent your child. Yes, instruct them in the faith and to do those things. But brothers and sisters, don't get caught up in seeking to carry that burden upon yourself as if it were up to you somehow to work some kind of change in your child's heart. Know that God is the workman. God is the one that will work in that child's heart. Or Christian, maybe you have struggled with temptation that has mastered your life for way too long and you've done everything in your power to overcome maybe a besetting sin that you have been struggling with, but you have been weak. And I want to say this morning, cry out to the master craftsman who is able to work in such a way in your heart that you can stand against such temptation. God is the workman in our life. We see that Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10. Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. He understands. It's not of him. It's of God. And he goes, and his grace towards me was not in vain. He goes, on the contrary. And then Paul says, I worked harder than any of them. Do you see that? You see that tension between God. Not really a tension, but it's really God's grace that then produces that sense of obedience to God. But he goes, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was within me. You see that sense of which God is working in them. So brothers and sisters, we've got to purge from our thinking any idea of self-improvement when it comes to the Christian life. That is not the case. It is the work of God. And as we think of our Christian lives, we must stop thinking in terms of what we do and what we're doing rather than thinking, in, we must rather think in terms of what God is doing. We must see ourselves in the hands of the great maker and creator that is working upon us. And as we do so, not only for our own Christian lives, but for Kirk of the Plains 
and our church, we need to understand that God is molding and he is shaping our church into a vessel that he will be used for his glory. So I don't know what you're struggling with here this morning in your Christian walk, but know that God is the one who is working in you. Now, how does God do this work? Well, first we see that God does so through Jesus Christ, we see here in verse 10. We also saw that in verses 4 through 7, where we're told where we're made alive in him, that is in Christ. We're raised together with him, with Christ. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly places, which means we receive the benefits of his death and his life. In other words, we receive his very life himself. God is forming Christ in us. Paul uses that language in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19. He says, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. That is what God is doing. He is taking that nature of Christ, and he's making that, uh, he's making that in us. And that's the New Testament idea of being a Christian. It's more than being just a decent person or being moral, but it's having a nature like Christ. You know, the Bible talks a lot about being united to Christ. And, and I have to admit, I think I need to study that doctrine more and more and more. I think if we could grasp what it meant to be united in Christ, I think it would radically change our Christian life. But the best illustration that I can think to, to use to, to get this idea across is to think about our head in our body. In, in our head, the Bible even uses the, the analogy of a head to signify Christ, and the body is to signify the church. And as the church is united with Christ, Christ thinks certain thoughts, he does things certain ways, and that expresses itself through the body. So as I'm thinking with my brain, I'm not even realizing I'm thinking, I'm thinking about moving my arms out, my arms go out. And it is the same way with Christ, as we are united with him, as he, he lives a certain way, he thinks a certain way, he has certain convictions that begins to flow out through his church as they walk in unity of that union with Christ. And so Christ is being formed in us. Now, how exactly does Christ do that? What means does God employ to form us in Christ? And we'll talk more about that work. Well, Kids, let me help you out. I know I've used the illustration of the potter and the clay, but, but maybe let's think of something more contemporary, something more updated. And I guess this isn't just for the kids, it's for the adults as well. But have you guys ever gone on a field trip somewhere? Yeah! And maybe you've gone somewhere to see how they make things, maybe to a shop or a factory or something like that, and they've, they've made certain things. I know our kids have gone to see how they make baseball bats. I know others probably have gone to see how they make donuts or candy or bagels or, or something like that, okay? But I know for me, when I was younger, I went to see how they made glass vases. And, and, they, and there's this guy with this long tube. And on the end of this tube was just a blob of something. It just looked like goo. What I found out later on, it was glass. And it was on this tube. And this guy would put this tube in the furnace. And he would turn the tube and get that stuff on the end just glowing red hot. And then he would take and he would blow on that tube. And that would make that blob on the end begin to grow out. And then he would take tools. And as he was blowing, he would begin to sort of mold and shape and fashion that, that glass until... He got done, and he would be putting it in the furnace, blowing, sort of molding, shaping. And when he got done, it was this beautiful glass face. 
the point is, is that there is a process in everything like that that's made. And that's the same that the Lord does for us, is that he uses certain things in our lives and goes, takes us through a process as Christians to make us like Jesus Christ. And I want to mention just a few things that he uses. How does he do this work? Well, we saw in chapter 1, verses 3 through 4, that the Father plans salvation, the Son works it out, but it is the Holy Spirit that applies that salvation to us. So the first thing that we see that he uses is the Holy Spirit in our lives, part of which is fashioning us according to the image of Christ or forming us in Christ. You know, we read this in 1 Corinthians six nineteen, where Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have for God? The Holy Spirit is in us if we are Christians, and he is at work to make us like Jesus Christ. There's a constant activity of the Holy Spirit in the individual Christian, and even in the church as well. The second thing we see is, is that he uses the scripture, or the Bible, um, you remember Jesus as he's praying that great high priestly prayer before he's about to be crucified. He said, sanctify them. That means make them holy. Set them apart. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. James repeats that same idea, only he puts it this way. James In James 1.18 says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Peter in 1 Peter 1, 21, or 23 says, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. We see that it is the word of God that God uses not only to bring us to faith in him, but to help us to grow in our spiritual life. As the word is preached, as it's taught, as it's shared, as it's read, the word of God uh, causes us to grow. And that's where the importance of the reading of God's word comes in. It means that God himself has chosen to use that mean of this word to help us to grow. Now, he didn't have to do that. He could have just said, we're well, going to automatically grow. But he said, as we read the word, we will grow. And that we see that the Lord, uh, as a matter of fact, saw this is so important that he gave certain offices to the church uh, certain men to help minister to the body of Christ, to help them to grow through the word. In, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, it says that he gave some apostles and prophets and evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. But why did he give them to the body? He says in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. To be like Jesus Christ. Uh, to mature. So do you see, kids, what God is doing in the factory where Christians are made? Now, there's no building, kids, that where there's a factory where you just run people in one end and they come out the other end a Christian. That's not what we're talking about. But in life, as God is working in our lives, he gives the church apostles and prophets and pastors or shepherds and teachers or preachers. And they're all put there by God and used by him to fashion and to shape God's people through the ministry of the word. I mean, go back to the guy that's blowing the glass. Remember, he has this blob on the end and, and, he's and he gets that really hot and then he blows on it and he takes these tools and he's fashioning that glass. He's, he's trying to, 
you know, form it, trying to get it rounded maybe in certain places and flat in other places. And he's using those tools to do that. And that's what God does in our lives. He uses the Holy Spirit and he uses the word of God uh, to do that. Brothers and sisters, it's, it's not God's work when we hesitate in our beds on Sunday mornings debating on whether to go to church or not. Nor is it his work when we neglect to read the word of God and to pray during the week. It is through those things that he uses to cause us to grow. But also he uses the circumstances and even correction, even trials and difficulties in our lives. Um, Think about Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. We read that the Lord corrects and he disciplines those he loves. And then he even uses the illustration in that passage about earthly parents. He said, do your parents correct you? Yes. A good parent will always correct their child. Why? Because they love them. Because they want to do that for their well-being. The good parent corrects the child not to get rid of pent-up frustration or anger, but because it is the best interest of that child. And then the argument of the writer of Hebrews says, and it's the same way with God. That he disciplines us because he loves us. Now that doesn't mean that sometimes that every time something goes wrong in our lives, that we are being disciplined by God. We do live in a world of sin where there are secondary causes that operate, and oftentimes our you know illnesses and diseases and even the trials that we go to sometimes are a result of the world in which we live. But there is a very clear teaching in the Bible, that God does correct his own children and he does that in order to perfect them. And so if you think about the glass blower who's blowing the glass, he has to take that glass, it's on the end of this tube, this pipe, and he has to put it in the furnace. And he has to make that nice and hot and red. Do you know why? Do you know why, kids? Because if he just left it out here and didn't put it in the furnace and he blew on that blob, it'd probably just blow it off the end of the pipe. He has to make that soft and pliable. And so he puts it in the hot furnace so that the tools that he uses will shape and form that. And it's the same way with God. Sometimes we are so bullheaded. Sometimes we don't want to listen to God. And so he sends us through great difficulties to make us soft and pliable and teachable so that we will hear him and we will hear his word and the spirit will work in us. So God's workmanship in our lives sometimes involves the use of circumstances and correction to cause us to grow. So we see that God is at work in us. We see some of the means that he uses to cause us to grow. But then what is the actual work that he does? Well, let me here again just share just a few things. But first of all, there's a conviction that happens in our lives. One of the first things a person becomes conscious of when God begins to work in him is that he is disturbed in his conscience and oftentimes convicted of his sins. All of a sudden he begins to see himself in a whole different way. I mean, think back to the point when you first became a Christian. And I'm sure that you were living that way. You were living a certain way, going in a certain direction. And and others that you knew were doing exactly the same thing. And you felt very comfortable with that. But then suddenly, or or maybe gradually, depends, it happens differently from person to person, you begin to not be so happy with your life as you once did. And maybe questions begin to be raised in your mind. And you begin to to look at your life and you think, wow, things just seem like 
my life has taken a turn. And you may even try to shake off these questions and shake off this feeling of this that you're going through. But because it is the work, when it is the work of God, you can't just merely shake those things off. If it is the conviction of God that is going on in your heart. Do you know what I'm talking about? The workmanship of God consists of a life of conviction. Those uh, peculiar interfaces and interruptions, it's that sense that God is, is dealing with us and dealing with our hearts. No person can be a Christian without such a thing. If you don't understand, at least to some extent, what the psalmist was experiencing when he said in Psalm 139.7, Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Um, chances are you're not a believer. You see, the very sense of resistance to God is a proof that God is dealing with you and doing something. So conviction of sin, questioning or thinking, all of that is the work of God through the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, if, if you are in charge of your life and you're still manipulating yourself and trying to make yourself better or more Christian looking or more moral, you're probably not a believer at all. The first thing that we see as God begins to work in a person's heart is that they begin to be aware that God is at work in them and they're convicting them. And that's not something that just happens when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's something that continues as we walk with him. God begins to address the words, the, the, the attitudes that we have towards other people. God begins to convict us about the movies maybe that we watch or, or, the, or the way that we treat others or the words that we speak or whatever it may be. Uh, God is convicting us. Uh, to uh, set us free. But in that, he not only convicts us, but he also enlightens our minds as well. A person who once thought nothing of such spiritual things suddenly begins to think something of the, the things that they are hearing. Maybe a person has grown up even reading the Bible, and it was just sort of boring, it was just a book, it was just words. Yeah, they didn't think much of it, but all of a sudden, then one day, then all of a sudden, these words... They don't seem like just words anymore. They're, they're life-giving words. And, and, and you find yourself you wanting to read these things. It is the Holy Spirit working in the man and opening his mind and increasing to a perception and understanding of the truth. It is God who is at work putting the thoughts and opening the minds. We see Paul talk about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you want to turn there, you can. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14 through 18 and he describes, first of all, the person who doesn't have the mind of God, a person who's not a believer. Actually, he's talking about the Jews who would say, hey, I'm a follower of God. And yet God has not changed their heart or their life. The, work, the Holy Spirit has not worked in their minds. And this is how he describes them. He says, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Testament, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, that is, whenever the Old Testament law is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. 
For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so you see that sense of enlightening the minds. But also, it's an awareness of a new nature that God has, has given to us in a principle of life. And here again, as I said before, that's not just something we get when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, but it's something we get to walk in, that new nature, as we grow in Him. In spite of ourselves, we find that we have a new outlook on life. We find that we are no longer what we were. Things that we once did with friends, maybe went out for entertainment or pleasure, no longer seems appropriate. And we might uh, force ourselves at first to go out with those friends and to do those things. And then we find out, actually, we're thinking very, very differently because we're a different person. We're not who we were. The things that we once took pleasure in, yeah, not so much so anymore. And the reason, as Paul put it in Ephesians 2.10, is for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in that. So there is a design for the Christian that God has planned ahead of time. And what is it? It is for their life to be conformed to the image of Christ. It is to be conformed to his practices and his ways. We live in a world that is contrary to Christ. But once we come to faith in Christ, it's very different. And so we begin to find ourselves desiring. And I think a great summary of what, how we see that change is found in the Sermon on the Mount. But also we're going to see it as we look through James. Let me, or James, Ephesians. Um, let me just read a, a larger section of Ephesians just so you can see the kind of lifestyle that he's talking about. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. Beginning with verse 17, Paul is talking to the, to the Ephesians and he says, look, your life is different. You guys used to be like this before you came to faith in Christ, but now you've learned Christ a different way. And therefore, this is the freedom that you have in Christ to live this way as opposed to the way you used to live. This is what he says in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And then skip down to verse 22. Put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see, that's what God has set us free, that we might be holy, that we might set, be set apart and to live as he lives. He said, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another 
as God in Christ forgave you. And then look on into chapter 5 even. He said, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. You see, it's not that we somehow try to do these things to become Christians, but these are works that God has set up uh, ahead of time for us uh, to walk in. That's the kind of life that God has saved us uh, to live. We are are being formed and fashioned for that. And that is the design and the shape that we have been saved for. God is making us for that. And it is a process. We're not made perfect in a moment. Sanctification is a process, but it is a, a process that is sure. Christian people, we are in the process as certain as we are Christians. God has taken hold of us. He is fashioning us and he, is, he will keep on working. That's what we read last week in Philippians 1 verse 6. That he will begin that which he has started. So nothing inside of us or outside of us can prevent that. When God takes hold of us, he will not leave the work unfinished. Now kids, let's go back to the, the shop that you went to. The field trip that you went on. And let's say you were seeing donuts being made. And you saw donuts. Did you ever see any donuts that didn't come out right? That they messed up on? And they said, oh, we got to take these donuts. We can't sell these. And they had to put them off to the side. You know, when I saw the guy blowing glass, he actually made a mistake and had to get rid of uh, a vase because I can't remember whether it's too big or it's cracked or, or what happened. But they had to discard that. But unlike these shops and factories, with God, this process always works. There are no rejects in God's factory. God's work is always perfect and it is always complete. And if God has taken hold of you and has started fashioning you according to the image of Christ, Christian, as surely as the sun is shining this morning, God will continue that work in, in you until the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Is that not a glorious truth? Is that not wonderful? Let me ask you again, brothers and sisters, do you habitually think of yourself as God's workmanship? Do you see yourself as being handcrafted by God in all the struggles that you might have in your Christian life and the struggles you have to get angry and blow up at your family or to give in to certain temptations of fear or worry or whatever it might be? It is good news to know that in spite of that, that God has continued to work in us. And He doesn't mass-produce Christians. He didn't put us on an assembly line. He does use the same tools. He uses the Holy Spirit. He uses a word. But He handcrafts us. And so sometimes He takes you through a situation that He won't take you through because He knows exactly what we need to be made in His image. But brothers and sisters, if we are a Christian and God is working in us and we are resisting His will understand and be prepared for what's coming because God loves you so much that he will correct you. Be prepared even for severe and harsh dealings with you that is motivated by God's immense love. Kids, remember we went through Jonah, the book of Jonah? And what did Jonah do? 
God said, go this way. Which way did Jonah go? He went that way. But God didn't leave him. And, and God pursued him and had him cast out of a boat and sunk deep into the ocean until a huge fish came up and swallowed him. And where did the fish take him? Over there. And spit him up. And right where God wanted him. He wasn't going to leave his prophet go. And the same way, he won't let us go. So let me ask you these questions this morning as we close. Is this happening in your heart? Can you say that you are God's workmanship? Is God dealing with your heart to draw you away from sin and toward Him in obedience, no matter what the cost? Are you conscious of being molded and fashioned and shaped in such a way to be like Jesus Christ? Do you take comfort in God's workmanship in your life, or are you fighting against it? Are you here this morning, and you look very good on the outside. All of you guys look great. But maybe inside you're struggling. Maybe inside... You know, you, you've, you've even committed sin on your way to church this morning. And uh, maybe you've been upset with your wife or your kids or, or someone else. And you're still brooding over that. Do you desire from the Lord His Word like a baby desires milk? We have a lot of little kids and I watch them with their bottles. And boy, you want to make them mad. Take their bottle away from them. Is that the desire that we have for God's Word? Do you desire holiness? laying aside the filth of this world to walk as God walks, when God looked upon you and loved you and began to work in you to make you as a Christian, He had already prepared the works which you should live and walk in. There is no such thing as a faith without works because faith without works is dead, as we saw in James. So the proof of faith is a desire to be more like Jesus Christ, holy, and pure, separate from the world and from sin, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, that we may please the God who has begun a good work in us. Amen? Please, let's bow our heads for a moment as we meditate upon the word that was preached this morning. Oh God, our master craftsman, we come to you today and we give you thanks, Lord for the work that you have done in our hearts and that you continue to do. It is so good, Lord, to, to reflect upon these things and God to see that even this little baby that we've been singing about who was born in a stable um, many centuries ago, that he is our Savior, the one that grew up, died on the cross to take the penalty for our sin that we might be set free, not only from the condemnation of that sin and the judgment of that sin, but we would be set free, Lord, from the power of that sin, that we could live lives that are very different from what we see lived out in the world today. God, we wouldn't be perfect, obviously, but Lord, we are people in whose heart you are working. And I pray, God, that you would help us today as individual Christians and even as a church, Lord, as we think about Kirk of the Plains and, and what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. Uh, Lord, may we be looking to you to do a work in us. Oh, God, we pray and thank you for the comfort that you give us in the midst of our struggles. Lord, sometimes in the midst of our apathy, uh, to know that you are at work, God, even when our hearts are very apathetic, or God, sometimes even when our hearts are rebellious against you, 
that you love us enough that we know that you will discipline us. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would continue the work that you have done in us. Uh, Not only, Lord, for our benefit, but God, that people could see the power of God, that you could take a person such as I, and that you could make them new creatures in Christ. Oh, glory be to your name. We thank you, Lord, for your mighty work and power. And we pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit that gives us salvation. Amen.